let us just uh, continue in prayer for a moment, shall we? Father, uh, we pray that you would be with me as I speak and give me clarity and your words. And we pray that you would renew our minds so that we would understand your word and apply it in our lives. Amen. Uh, We will have our reading from 2 Samuel in just a moment, but before we have it, I would like to give a few words by way of introduction. Uh, As I'm sure many of you are aware, following the death of Saul, which was probably just before 1000 BC, David, son of Jesse, became king over the tribe of Judah, ruling from Hebron, which is a little way south of Jerusalem. Uh, Meanwhile, Ishbosheth, one of the sons of Saul, was ruling over the northern tribes, albeit subject to Philistine domination. And and as we heard last week, Ishbosheth fell out with the commander of his army, Abner. And uh, Abner defected to David, but he was murdered by David's general, Joab. Ishbosheth's authority was crumbling, and we learn that two more of his senior army officers, Rechab and Baana, uh, both turned against him. And it's at that point that our first reading takes up the story. So uh, if you would like to come up, Mary, and give us the reading from 2 Samuel, that would be good. This reading is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 5, and it's on page 308 in the Pew Bibles. Now Rechab and Barna, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethrite, set out for the house of Ishbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother, Barna, slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed him and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by way of Araba. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my lord, the king, against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Barna, the sons of Rimmon, the Beothjite, As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of this every trouble, when someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing a good news? I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed? Should I now demand his blood from your hand and and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, You are now your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. 
When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David the king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Mary. Well, I saw that a fair number of you watched the coronation yesterday, and today we're peering back over 3,000 years to another coronation, that of King David. Of course, although Charles will play an important role in our society, he is a constitutional monarch, whereas King David was the supreme authority in his kingdom. And to put it mildly, constitutional arrangements were a bit different back then. So you may wonder whether there is anything that we can learn from the Bible's account of kingship at the time of King David. But but if that's the case, you may be surprised to know that that account of the kingship underlies the modern concept of the rule of law and indeed is fundamental to a Christian understanding of the nature and exercise of authority. So so let's look at what happened. Uh, We're told that the elders of Israel came to David at Hebron and there anointed him as king, as Charles was anointed yesterday. And they said that there were three reasons why they were doing that. You'll find those in verses 1 and 2. First of all, 1 and 2 of chapter 5, I should say. First of all, they said, we are your own flesh and blood. David was an Israelite. But but that was more a gating item than the reason why they had chosen specifically him. And they went on. Uh, While Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. Yes, David was a successful general, and they were hoping that he would lead them to new victories over the Philistines. And then third, they said, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall become their ruler. In other words, they recognised his divine authority. Now, we may doubt the sincerity of some of them in relation to that, but for many, the events of the previous few years, indeed the previous few months in particular, would have been clear evidence of the Lord's blessing of David. And David himself certainly uh, recognised that divine authority. You see, he realised that although it was that it was the people who had physically anointed him, the only anointing that really mattered was that that came from God. He was the Lord's anointed. In other words, his power and authority came ultimately from God. And and here's the key point for us in relation to that. That point is true of all human power and authority. You see, 
uh, God is the sovereign over the whole of the earth. He's the ultimate sovereign. Uh, The Lord is the great king over all the earth, says Psalm 47. And in the New Testament, we learn that that sovereignty is exercised by Jesus. And, And if you think about it, that must be so. If God is the creator and sustainer of the world, then he must have authority over it, mustn't he? Now, as the books of Samuel illustrate, that doesn't mean that the need for human authority is eliminated. It isn't. However, if we recognise and acknowledge God, that God is the supreme sovereign, then then we must realise and recognise as well that all human authority is delegated. The Bible makes that point time and again. Uh, Do you remember what Jesus said to Pilate when he was standing in front of him? Well, well, he said a few things, but, but in particular this. You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That point is made time and again in the Bible. So, what are its implications? Well, that's the cue for our second reading today. Mary. This second reading comes from Deuteronomy, chapter 17, starting at verse 14, and can be found on page 196. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say... Let us set a king over us, like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among you, your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law, taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites, and turn from the law to the right or to the left, then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you again, Mary. There are various points to note in that passage. The first one is very simple. The king is not someone who is special. The king is simply someone in whom God has vested certain authority. Uh, This is verse 20 of that reading. The king shall not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites. Uh, And that point applies as much to anyone who exercises authority today as it did to King David. Uh, Many years ago, Charles I famously said, a subject and a sovereign 
are clean different things. The Bible fundamentally disagrees with that point, and I trust so does Charles III. That's point one. Uh, Point two is this. All human authority is limited. Uh, Did you notice that the king is subject to certain restrictions? He was not to be an absolute monarch. In particular, in verse 16, the king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. Now, the precise restrictions on authority will vary from time to time and place to place. Rulers gathering for themselves undue numbers of horses is not the greatest abuse of power in the modern world. Uh, But the underlying principle remains. All human authority is limited and is subject to God's law. And that leads in to the third point in relation to that, Authority brings obligations with it. Verse 18, when he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And to use the analogy that the leaders of Israel used when talking to David, uh, in particular, the king was to be a shepherd of his people. In other words, he was to use his power to serve the people, to protect them, to lead them. Everyone who exercises authority today needs to remember that point. And at least at the start of his reign, David did remember it. Going back to our first reading, chapter 5, verse 3, it says that King David made a covenant with the people at Hebron. Now, we don't know the detail of that covenant. We don't know what it contained, but it doubtless contained a promise from David that he would reign as a good king, that he would be a shepherd for the people, that he would comply with his obligations as king. Incidentally, a number of kings down the ages have likewise promised to do that. In in fact, did you note it yesterday? Uh, In our own country, perhaps the first big example of that, at least the first one I'm aware of, is the coronation charter of Henry I back in 1100. Uh, Magna Carta may be treated as a second one. Uh, Or more recently, the Bill of Rights agreed to by William III when he came to the throne, which is still the foundation of some of our, our law. There is, however, a a danger. We need to avoid an unconscious assumption that because we don't have kings like that anymore, none of this is relevant to us. It it is. Kings can be tyrannical. Uh, Oligopolies of various kinds can become corrupt. And people acting collectively can do terrible things. In particular, can oppress minorities. Put simply, democracy does not guarantee godly government. Uh, Now, I need to mention something now to avoid you being misled. Uh, I confirm that I firmly favour democracy. Let's be clear about about that. 
Uh, indeed, it really worries me that there is a decline in confidence in democracy in the West today, I think particularly amongst younger people. And it seems to me that one of the reasons for that decline, however, is that we expect democracy to bear a burden that it is incapable of bearing. Democracy in and of itself cannot guarantee godly government. And it's striking that the Bible has less to say about who exercises power than it has to say about how power is exercised. There's also another important point that we need to bear in mind. We mustn't fall into the trap of thinking that this doesn't really apply to you and me because we don't exercise political authority, well, except by voting. This applies to everyone who exercises any form of authority, be they the king, the prime minister, a church leader, a business leader, a teacher, someone who exercises authority within a team at work or perhaps in voluntary work, someone who does so within the family. It doesn't matter. This applies to all who exercise authority. And that means it applies to most of us here today. We need to bear in mind that all authority is delegated by God and is limited and that it come, brings with it obligations and we are accountable to God for the fulfilment of those obligations. So uh, how did David match up to the requirements of the kingship around the time of his accession? Well, he did well militarily. If you were to read on in chapter 5, you would find that he conquered Jerusalem, took it from the Jebusites, and then he went on twice to defeat the Philistines and remove their domination of the north of the country. And he did well politically. It was a really astute move, moving his capital to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on the border between Judah and the northern tribes, and it had never been controlled by either of them because it had been occupied by the Jebusites. In other words, it was neutral. But um, what about spiritually? Well, if you look at the account later in chapter 5 of his victories over the Philistines, you'll find that unlike his predecessor, King Saul, he was committed to God and he sought God's guidance. Furthermore, his execution of the murderers of Ishbosheth uh, showed that he realized that the end does not justify the means, and that as king, he was responsible for the enforcement of justice. So there was a lot that was good. But, but, there were warning signs of problems ahead. First of all, what he did in the execution of the murderers of Ishbosheth contrasts rather starkly with his failure to bring Joab to account for his murder of Abner. As Eddie pointed out last week, David did not consistently enforce 
justice. And I suspect that some of the people of his age would have noted that Joab was his nephew. God's law, which it was the responsibility of the king to uphold, uh, was not being applied impartially. And, And what about his family? Verse 13 of chapter 5 says this, After he left Hebron, David took more concubines and wives in Jerusalem, and more sons and daughters were born to him. Again, as Eddie pointed out last week, and as we heard in that reading from Deuteronomy, the king was expressly prohibited from having multiple wives. But David already had six before he moved to Jerusalem, and apparently that wasn't enough for him. Um, His disobedience to God's law was to have very serious consequences for him personally, for his family, and indeed for the whole nation in the years that followed. You see, David was committed to God. His life was, uh, uh, had the correct orientation. And that's why he was praised in the Bible. But he was still a sinful human being. And that is true, that latter point, of all who exercise authority today. And we need to remember it both in relation to our own exercise of whatever authority we have, and also in relation to people who exercise authority over us. There are a number of related points, uh, points that are related to what I've just said there. Uh, First of all, The Bible indicates that although because of sin, all human authority is flawed, we must nonetheless respect it and be subject to it. Oh, oh, and incidentally, notwithstanding we're sinful, we are still entitled to exercise authority. Uh, This is what Peter said, it's 1 Peter 2.17. Show proper respect for everyone, Love the family of believers, fear God, honour the emperor. And that's particularly striking because the emperor was a pagan. In fact, he was probably the dreadful Nero. You see, except in the most unusual circumstances, what Paul says on this subject applies to us. This is Romans 13.5. It's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. The second point coming out of uh, uh, what I said a moment ago is rather more prosaic. We need to be realistic about this. We're, We're all imperfect, sinful people. And we have no ground or right to expect that those who exercise authority over us will be otherwise. Now, that's not to say that we should smile benignly on wrongdoing. But we do need to be careful that we don't pharisaically judge and condemn those who have authority over us for failing to attain standards that we ourselves cannot attain. And the second aspect of that realism is we need to be careful that we don't put undue trust in human authority. 
the Israelites put their trust in King David. And of course, to some extent, that was right and proper and was justified. Uh, as I pointed out, he did indeed defeat the Philistines as they hoped. But David himself warned of the dangers of trust in human authorities. You remember this from Psalm 118, which we looked at a few weeks ago on Palm Sunday. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The Bible's account of the life of David teaches us many things, of of which what we've been looking at this morning is one and is very important. On the one hand, we must recognise that all human authority has its origin in God and needs to be respected and submitted to accordingly. On the other hand, we need to recognise that all human authority is flawed and that in the end we must look beyond that authority and put our trust only in God. In fact, of course, we must put our trust in great David's greater son, to quote James Montgomery's great hymn. We must put our trust in the king to whom King David pointed, the king of kings, the only true and perfect shepherd king, Jesus. Amen.